They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone and welcome to episode 2 of Bead vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, unofficial follow-up and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. And before we go on to episode 2, I just want to... I just want to say thank you to everyone who listened to the debut episode of the show. It really means a lot to me. And also hearing all the feedback as well. And I'm glad everyone enjoyed uh, episode one where we dissected the original Night of the Living Dead. It was a really fun episode and uh, we had a lot of great conversations on that one. But now we're going into the really big journey of this series, which of course is diving in all the different versions of Night of the Living Dead. Before we go into tonight's discussion, I got two very awesome special guests who are joining me for this episode. First up is someone who's making her return after appearing on the previous episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. And of course, she is my co-host on the many podcasts over on the Super Network, and as well as the host of her own solo podcast, which of course is After Dark with Super Marcy. And that, of course, is Super Marcy. Hello, Marcy. How are you? Hello, hello. Yes, I'm very super. I do too many podcasts, uh, but I'm glad to be back on your solo podcast feed. Indeed, indeed. It's not like I forced you to come onto this uh, second episode or anything like that. Now, to be fair, though, to be fair, um, (laughs) but uh, you did request to be on this episode when I sent you the episode list and you were like, I need to be on uh, this one in particular. So I'm glad you're here to talk about this one with me. Well, I figured this is probably one of the better ones you're going to discuss. Yeah. Why not uh, go into something that's uh, not terrible? Indeed, uh, indeed. Um, <laughs> spoilers, I, for episode three, I watched a few minutes of one of the two Night of the Living Dead products I'm watching for that episode. And let's just say I'm already deeply regretting my decision to cover everything on this show. <laughs> and uh, you'll find out why on that uh, third episode. But in the meantime, though, we have another guest who is joining us and he's making his debut on the show. And he, of course, is the host, the co-host, I should say, of his own podcast, which of course is Killer Horror Critics. And he is, of course, the head on show of the site of the same name. And that, of course, is Matt Konopka. Hello, Matt. How are you? Hello. Uh, good to be here. I'm also excited to talk about the not terrible Night of the Living Dead 
same besides the originals. <laughs> See, Matt, like if you decide to come back on future episodes, which I have a feeling you will, I may have to find the worst one so we can talk about it. I mean, they all set a pretty low bar. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the worst is, but. <laughs> Indeed, I guess I could be a thing like once I get to the end of this journey, if I ever do. Um, you won't I probably survive. Might have, yeah, <laughs> I probably might have to sort of talk about like the worst ones I've discussed for this show. So um... <laughs> you're going to be like coming back from war. Just like... <laughs> exactly. Just like exactly. I got to the, the, the most recent one and oh my God, it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that's going to be like that for episode three, but I don't want to like uh, spoil anything just yet. But before we go into our discussion tonight, now I've already asked you this question on the previous episode, Marcy. Yes. So I'm going to ask Matt this question because he's our first like this is his first ever time on the no, show, and I got to ask. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're a, you're a Night of the Living Dead, or sorry, I should say, a Bead versus the Living Dead virgin. So I'm about to pop your cherry right now Ooh. and ask you this question, Matt. When was the first time you saw the original 1968 version of Night of the Living Dead? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I think the original Night of the Living Dead first made me the man I am today. Uh, when, so, so I actually think that I first caught it, um, of all places, on Halloween 2. So, so, so that would have sort of been my first time kind of just seeing glimpses of it would be when I was a kid, probably like seven or eight. As for actually watching the movie the first time, I went on this huge George Romero kick uh, when I was a teenager, and it's because I saw Night of the Living Dead. So I think I caught that around actually 12 or 13 and then just watched nothing but Romero movies for like a month. <laughs> and what were your uh, first initial thoughts on the film when you saw it the first time? That it was brilliant, pretty much. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, like, I don't, I don't know a better way to say it. It's just, you know, I think that especially as a kid, you know, growing up, I wanted to, I, I grew up with more 80s horror kind of stuff like that. So that was kind of my first you know sort of binge as a horror fan was watching all these 80s films and so you know black and white in a weird way had a stigma to me as a kid of just like oh well it's not recent you know so i'm I, i'm watching all these color movies right whatever and that eventually changed obviously but it took me a while to get to night of the living dead and i just remember going into it thinking you know mo most films from that period are pretty were pretty corny and campy by today's standards right I was just, by the time it finished, I was just in awe because it blew me away. You know, that, that film is terrifying. And the last few images of it are just so shocking and disturbing that, you know, I, I was speechless, pretty much. I mean, I, I just don't know how to say it better than that. It left me speechless. Yeah, well, I think uh, I'm, I've already mentioned this before, that pretty much the first time I saw the film, when it got to the ending, like I never, I thought, okay, it's going to end on a happy note. Ben's going to live. But then when he gets shot, I think I was pretty much pissed off with the film. Yeah. Like, how dare you kill off the main character? And it just happens so casually oh, yeah. as well. It's very but, frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And, but that's the thing, though. That's the power of that ending. Like, even though I hate it at the time, but I've grown to kind of love and respect that ending. And, of course, like, given what's been going on in our world in the past 55 years yeah, since no that kidding. movie's been released, it just becomes more and more relevant and timeless because of not just the ending but just the whole film in general 
Oh, 100%. Completely agree. And, you know, same with the topic we're going to be discussing tonight. Just feels more and more relevant as time goes on because, you know, these movies are so much about... I mean, that's that's always been kind of the brilliance of Romero zombie films, right? Is that it's never really about the zombies being the monster. It's people, you know, and our just complete inability to work together when we have different ideas. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I guess that could segue into our topic tonight. So for tonight's episode of Bead vs. Living Dead, we're going to be talking about the very first remake of George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And that, of course, is the 1990 version, which we're going to discuss right now. They came to pay their respects. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Why do you have to be so cruel? What? Show some respect. Now, they're running for their lives. A biologist in Stockton, California, have released reports focusing on the phenomenon, specifically on that trance-like state. Every shelter is becoming a trap. Are you sure we're going to be all right? Cooper, you got to help me out! And every road out... Don't stop no matter what happens. ...is just another dead end. They're coming right for us! George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead, 1990, which we'll we'll call for now, was directed by legendary makeup artist Tom Savini in his feature directorial debut uh, from a screenplay by George A. Romero, which of course was based on the 1968 film of the same name written by Romero and John A. Russo. The film stars Tony Todd, Patricia Tallman, Tom Towles, McKee Anderson, William Butler, Katie Finnery, and Bill Moseley. And the plot summary for this film, which I am reading off IMDb, is When the unburied dead return to life and seek human victims, seven refugees seek shelter in a house in the Pennsylvanian countryside. But the group is at odds as how to they should deal with the situation. Marcy, I know... You, when I, as I said it before, like when I should sent you my list of episodes that I'm be going to be covering for Bead versus the Living Dead. As soon as you saw that I'm going to be, of course, obviously covering the 1990 remake, you pretty much immediately put your hand up. So why did you start us off by sharing us your thoughts on the 1990 version of Night of the Living Dead? Mm. <clears throat> well, I figured this is a good one, so maybe I'll avoid the shitty ones to talk about. <laughs> uh, probably my, probably the main reason for that. But uh, yeah, actually, I saw this for the first time a few years ago. I don't actually remember when. It could have been 10 years ago. It could have been five years ago. Who the fuck knows anymore? I don't know. Time has no meaning anymore. Um <laughs> Yeah, I honestly don't remember. It was quite some time ago, but I really liked it. And yeah, I actually only didn't really realize until now that uh, making this film was a really bad experience for Tom Savini and that the producers made a lot of changes. But the end product of the film, I think, is actually a genuinely a really good film. I think that it does a good job of like what a remake should do. And that's honor the original in some way, but still do your own thing that still makes sense within the context and the story. And I think that's what they've managed to do here. 
where the changes actually make a lot of sense and the story progresses still in the same kind of way, but it's still different. So I quite like that. And I think that the two leads with Trini Todd as Ben and Patricia Tolman as Barbara are just fantastic. They are very different to their original counterparts because we get a Barbara who is pretty much shooting zombies, like not that far into the film. Uh, she is definitely more of like an action he heroine, I suppose, rather than like having that trauma shut you down kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's just, it handles things very differently. It's a very different film, even with the same kind of story. But I think, yeah, they just do a lot with what there is. And it's just really interesting to see the character dynamics um, I think Tony Todd is just fantastic as Ben. Uh, I think this is like his first, this was his first horror film. Yep, indeed it was. From mm -hmm. what I know. Um, and he plays Ben, it's still kind of similar, but very different. And there's a lot of empathy that you can feel with this character of Ben. And the growth that you see with Barbara, like she has the glasses at the beginning. She's got the baggy clothes, the skirt, and then... Halfway through, she's like, fuck this shit. I'm shooting guns. I'm putting on pants. Let's go. <laughs> so, and I think the kind of character dynamics that we have are really interesting. Like, Tom Towles plays Harry Cooper as the biggest fucking asshole in the world. And no one but Tom Towles probably could have done it as well as it's done here. Uh, but I, this watch, I definitely noticed, and I don't know if this was ever intentional or not. But the the bullshit macho toxic masculinity between the characters is oh, yeah. ultimately what is their downfall. And I don't know if that was intentional, but it really stuck out to me, especially in regards to, like, the Tom Towers character, but sort of with how other people react as well. Like, there is a massive toxicity with how they act. And the, the female characters are kind of different, and they do, like, stand up for themselves. Like... Uh, the wife of Harry, Helen, kind of stands up to him a little bit, but we kind of know where that ends up going ultimately. Uh, I just thought this still thing is like a really good, interesting film, and I, I think it does honour the original very well. I, I just feel bad that it is a genuinely good film and that, you know, it was one of Tom Savini's, like, worst experiences. But, you know, it was his... Being a, a debut film and clashing with producers, like I can imagine that would be really annoying, oh, uh, yeah. especially when you're dealing with uh, <laughs> with uh, the likes of, yeah, Maheim Golem, um, Golan, I can't say his name, but yeah. So I, I just, when I did first see it, like I genuinely thought like, wow, this is really, really good. I do think actually I may have watched it after I had met and interviewed Patricia Tolman Maybe that was 11 years ago now. It was quite some time ago. And yeah, I hadn't seen it at that point. And I think she told me I should watch it. So I did. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. And uh, Matt, what are your thoughts on Night of the Living Dead 1990? Yeah. So this is one that I also really enjoy. Uh, and I completely agree that, you know, I think it's too bad that uh, Savini didn't have a positive experience on this because I do think it's a film to be proud of. And the interesting thing about that, though, is maybe it's because this is maybe it's because the frustration with humanity is already sort of inherent in the story of Night of the Living Dead. But you really do just get 
a pretty deep sense of that frustration and anger towards people uh, within this film. And I, I wonder if his interactions with the producers, and I, I believe if I remember correctly, he was also going through a divorce at the time. Uh, I, I wonder if all of that kind of seeps into the movie because mm. this, this Night of the Living Dead, well, both of them are very pessimistic and and you know frightening and disturbing the the other one the original still feels a little bit more like a classic monster movie in some degree and this one i i get a somewhat darker sense from you know it just feels a little bit more angry if that makes any sense and but no you know it's an interesting thing with this one because i'm the type of person where i i really like remakes i'm not anyone who opposes them but I, but when I see a remake done, I, I really want to see something very different. You know, I, I want to see a completely different approach to the story. And the interesting thing about the Night of the Living Dead is, you know, it's not, it does some things different, but it's basically your same story. You know, it follows similar beats and all that. Yet, despite that, it does just enough differently that you do really end up enjoying and appreciating it for what it does do differently. Like Marcy was mentioning, I think that one of the biggest complaints most people have about the original is that Barbara, played by Judith Day, just kind of spends most of the movie comatose, you know, and and especially today, and and then too, like we hate, you know, seeing female characters be reduced to that, like that sucks. <laughs> and and I I know what Romero was going for with that, you know, he he wanted to show the trauma of the situation, he wanted to he wanted the audience to kind of live through Barbara with that terror, you know, you're supposed to feel the terror of the situation through her. But I still I, I appreciate this take much more, seeing Barbara just kind of come in and be like. Yeah, she she looks like these characteristics that you might associate her with from the original. Again, like Marcy was saying, the baggy clothes, the the glasses, like oh my god, she takes off her glasses and now she's tough. But <laughs> um, but she but she is this character who you make assumptions about, and then she completely turns those on their heads and becomes the strength of the movie, because in both films and especially here, you know Marcy's dead on. Like they're about toxic masculinity and the fact that we can't really rely on two deferring parties or leaders or whatever like this when that is how they view things and it's sort of i'm right you're wrong no discussion you know my dick's bigger kind of ways (laughs) and and she's the only one who's being sensible through the entire movie for the most part you know and if they had just taken a moment to actually pay attention to her and listen to her and stop degrading her because she's a woman or something maybe they would have survived so so no i i do really like it though it's we need a great job the effects are incredible of course uh the zombies look terrifying and yeah no it's one that i really enjoy it's definitely the best i think of the night of the living dead remakes at least oh well, at least for the ones i'll be covering for this show at least, at least i have a <laughs> exactly aren't exactly. you covering all of them I am covering all of them, so I don't know what to expect from the other ones in the future, but uh, they have a lot all to uh, kind of... All downhill from here, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but oh, we don't really care what you think about the film, so uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but uh, my thoughts on Night of the Living Dead 1990. Well, I actually do enjoy the film overall. I do have problems with it, and we'll go into that as this episode mm. goes on, but as a film on its own, because like the original Night of the Living Dead is just an absolute classic, and mm. it's just a brilliant film in every way. Even though the remake does follow the exact same structure and plot beats of the original, 
it does find a way to kind of keep things fresh, like having a mm. different tone or even sort of going at its characters a little bit differently or obviously amping up the the gore and the violence and the makeup when it comes to the zombies. And it's just a very different feeling film. And I think that is what any kind of remake should do. Like whether you kind of want to stick closer to the plot structure of the original or do something completely different. I think if you just still capture what the essence of what the original was, I think that is to me the key thing for, mm. for having a successful remake. And for the most part, I think the film does that pretty well. It's definitely not as subtle compared <laughs> to the original 68 version, but we'll get into that very soon. But overall, I think it is a pretty enjoyable remake. Like it's got some pretty solid performances. Uh, Tony Todd's great in the film. Oh, yeah. And he definitely brings a lot of new and interesting layers to the character of Ben that make him even like this take on the character just as interesting as when Dwayne Jones played the character in the first one. And I also do like how Patricia Tolman, uh, her take on Barbara is a really interesting one. They kind of give her more of a, almost a Sigourney Weaver kind of uh, character Definitely. with this one. Sort of. And, you know, I had no problem with how sort of Barbara was portrayed in the original 68 version, because I feel like given the situation that was happening to that character, it would make sense and be believable that a character oh, yeah. would be oh, shut yeah. down. 100%. But it's, but it's good that at least they kind of, Romero and Savini, kind of change it up a little bit with this one and make Barbara more proactive with everything that's going on. And also kind of making Barbara the, almost like the audience surrogate character, because she does mention quite a lot of times, like things like, like while, you know, Ben and Harry are at odds at each other, uh, she comes up with good points. It's like, well, the zombies are so slow. We could just walk around them and get going. And of course, mm. obviously nobody takes notice of that or agrees with her mm. and a lot of the things she's right and in a lot of ways like given that up to this point it had already been yes 22 years since the original had come out you know there have been a lot of zombie films this year so a lot more people are a bit more savvier with zombies mm. and the zombie rules so i like that elisa romero when it came to rewriting this script like he added those kind of elements in there like people would have obviously fought off like, oh, well, why are you people terrified of zombies? Just walk past them. They're so slow. <laughs> well, I have to say, at least in this version, they're not that slow. And they mm. managed to do a few things that you wouldn't imagine zombies could do. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I think like with the original, the zombies are the least important part of the film mm. because at the core of Night of the Living Dead and this remake, it is the characters. It's how they react to that situation. The zombies could literally be anything. That could be an alien mm. invasion. It could be vampires, whatever, coming to attack. Like, you know, sort of iconic as Night of the Living Dead, the original is for zombies. Like, I think they're sort of the most incidental part of it mm. Um, mm. because that's not truly what it's about. And... You know, I know that like King Stephen King has worked with Romero, and we've got some great stuff. But it's sort of like um, as if King kind of took that concept with Night of the Living Dead, where everything else that's happening is kind of incidental. It's really about the horror of humanity, and specifically in this version, it is men being fucking wankers <laughs> in the face of the apocalypse, and 
I'll continue to say this. Women will just rise above and we'll be the sole survivors. So absolutely. No, I mean, you know, this is why I think it's uh, really important when Barbara says that they are us and we are them. I I think the word she uses. And, you know, to to me, I've always just kind of read that as like the idea that, you know, the zombies themselves are just representative of mob mentality in a sense, you know, the mob mentality Mm. of, of people uh, because that's essentially what's going on through the film is you have two different mentalities that are warring with each other. And it's basically mm-hmm. just getting it. Basically, it's just boiling down humanity to the core of the fact that we don't work well together. <laughs> you know, we cannot no. like as much as so many of us want it to be this way and could let it be this way. Humanity just can't coexist in so many ways. You know, because there's always the people out there that become part of this mob mentality that really just follow whoever's leading and what they say. Right. And through this whole film, you know, it, the funny thing about what Barbara mentions with the zombies being so slow is that, you know, they, they do something fun at the end with that, where she leaves the house. And this is after, you know, peak zombie invasion of the film when when it should be hardest to leave the house. And she just walks out and she was right all along. She just walks past the zombies. One kind of approaches her and, and tries to attack her. And she just, you know, literally just like puts her hand out and almost like taps it to like push it away, you know, just showing like how pathetic these things really are and that they could have just left the entire time, you mm-hmm. know, and, and probably all survived had they just listened to her. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I I like the way the zombies are portrayed with that. And I like all that messaging because that's always been the core of what Romero's what makes Romero's zombie movies so effective is how well they reflect us in situations like this. Like the, the zombies are, you know, irrelevant. It could be anything. But the fact that they actually look like us is just great representation of that idea that we just we're all a bunch of stumbling morons when it comes to trying to figure out what to do in a crisis <laughs> i mean if anything films like this are more relevant now after what we've been through for almost the past three years 100 percent. i mean no covid really put it into perspective you know and it's it it really did like I, I still remember early days of that where you know just those images of people like outside shops and like clawing at the windows trying mm. to get in you know and not being let in because they weren't wearing masks or something and you know it's just like even today, you know, just to see how lax everything's become, not because it's safer, but simply because, you know, the economy nobody doesn't want to die bothered anymore. And, bothered and, anymore. And, and nobody can be bothered with it. I mean, here in America, we have a really progressive administration that's in control right now. And even they've become lax with it because they don't want to piss off the, the more conservative people that don't want to listen to science because so, they still need their votes. So it's yeah no it, it, the last three years really put in perspective like how shitty we pretty much are so. <laughs> yeah and uh we do know who would who would survive now um in the zombie apocalypse so yeah. essentially <laughs> yeah i mean i, I still know i would be the sole survivor but like, well, i mean the answer is you really... guys would have a decent <laughs> chance though i mean the answer is really none of us though because all the idiots we're, we're outnumbered by the idiots basically you know yeah we're, we're outnumbered by the people who can't think straight and who just don't want to be bothered with their everyday lives so, i mean i mean and and i think that's part of the scary thing about both versions of these versions of night of the living dead too is is the whole thing with the daughter and the fact that she's been bitten. And even in the end, when she becomes a zombie, Harry refuses to kill her. 
it, like he you know he refuses to do it and there would just be so many people like that that are like no i'm not going to do what's necessary i'm just gonna let shit happen and but, we all uh, know how that goes no indeed but uh I'm, we're gonna do something similar to what we did on episode one where we're gonna go through the free act structure of night of the living dead so we're gonna cover the first half the middle part and then the end so we'll start off with the first half of the film, which, of course, is a retelling of the the iconic opening of the original film, which, of course, is with Barbara and her brother Johnny going to the cemetery. But this time, though, a little bit different, because in the original, Barbara and Johnny were going to their father's grave on behalf of their mother. But this time, though, it's their mother's grave they're going to. So they're going to visit her. There's a lot of different changes in this opening, which I think are actually really good and kind of subverts what we expect a night what we think night of the living dead is going to be like the first thing that really caught my attention of course was the opening credits of this film which is kind of set over a moon there's a very beautiful Mm. subtle creepy ambience of of a score that's played under it that kind of really sets the creepy tone what we're going to expect but then again the very first line that we hear of the film of course is they're coming to get you barbara so right off the bat compared to the original where you know, Barbara and Johnny are kind of, you know, they they get along pretty well as brother and sister, and he kind of teases. Uh, Johnny, Johnny is still Barbara. a bit of a wanker. Yeah, he is, is, but oh, he is, but sure is. he's even, but he even is more so in this one. And their relationship, I find interesting in this remake, is much more antagonistic because, like, pretty much like again, Johnny's already making fun of Barbara on the drive there rather than at the cemetery. So once they actually get there, and Johnny, who is in a very small role played by Bill Mosley is makes that character very memorable. But what I love though, about this whole section is of course, while they're going to the grave and talking about it and Johnny's teasing Bob, we see someone walking in the background and we think, Oh, that's the cemetery zombie. They're about to get attacked, but it's not, it's just a regular person with a bad like wound on his head. uh, Who's in a daze. And then we think, and they're like, Oh, that's weird. We should go help that guy. And then all of a sudden, the cemetery zombie jumps out of nowhere, attacks them. But there's a little bit of humor, dark humor in the scene because Barbara uses the reef that they brought to their mother and tries to stab the zombie, but she accidentally stabs uh, Johnny instead. And then, of course, there's uh, Johnny gets killed. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, but here's even more of subversion. We think that's the only zombie at the cemetery. There's a second cemetery zombie. <laughs> oh, dude, that's a fresh fucking dead zombie. Oh yeah, because it shows like fresh. there's yeah, because we see Barbara. She's running away from the other zombie. She runs across an open coffin. So obviously, the guy we saw before was like a parishioner who comes, you know, see someone get buried. The zombie, I mean, the corpse came back to life, attacked him, and whoever whoever else was there. And it's a it kind of heightens the original mm. in a way. Well, well, so so first off, with what you're saying, you know, this is. Part of what I think is so fun about this remake in particular is that, like I was saying before, even though there's not so much deviation from the original plot, there are all these little things it does differently that subvert your expectations, right? And like to from from the largest ways of how Barbara's portrayed to the smallest senses where you were just saying where you know we expect the first person approaching to be the zombie, like in the original, mm. you know, and it's not, and that sets up a really nice scare where all of a sudden the real zombie just pops in the frame, right? Because you're not, because at that point you're not expecting it. You've already been set up by Savini because you're like, oh, well shit, they didn't do it right there. So 
you know, I don't know what's going to happen next now. Yeah, um, it already gives you that idea like, oh, this is not going to be like some carbon copy remake, like we're doing right. things differently. Right. So it, it does kind of like, whoa, especially like Barbara in the car, like that is such an intense scene because that zombie fucking gets a brick and breaks through the window. <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck? fuck is going on but it, it's kind of like uh romero and savini it's like you know you know what would be better than having one zombie try to chase barbara and try to attack her in a car let's have two zombies do it in and one who knows how to intensity. use a fucking brick mate well to be <laughs> fair the original <laughs> one did that the original one in right. the did that as well but it's even more of an intense scene it's I, so much more memorable here because you're not expecting what's happening yeah hmm in that way like it's like jesus this is like not holding back is it well, well i know i love the second zombie that shows up you know because part of part of savini's genius with makeup design is you know he he was in the vietnam war and everything so he was up he close saw and, everything he saw everything he was up close and personal with dead bodies and it almost kind of you know in a kind of sick bad way it's, it's almost what makes him perfect for this because mm. that that reveal with the second zombie you know where he's walking and then steps on his pants and his whole outfit just pulls down and it just slowly reveals you know the the operation the or the, the autopsy scar yeah. and yeah and the body you know the body has that kind of perfect like bloated yellowish look like it's just so nasty you know that y you really get the sense that these things are dead in this version right because mm -hmm. the original i mean don't get me wrong the zombies are still very effective in the original but they don't look that dead at times right you know they look pretty much like people <laughs> uh and, and and savini just enhances all of that so yeah it does it's got a much creepier kind of sinister vibe i feel like yeah for sure like it's basically like and it's a good contrast having the two different zombies there because we have one zombie that's obviously been dead for quite a while mm. so he's starting to look a little bit melted uh and then of course you got the other one and barbara of course doesn't think this guy is a zombie at first he just thinks oh it's a regular person can you help me and then of course once she finds out pretty quickly that it isn't but you know the makeup difference is quite amazing because it's very subtle work he does on that second zombie and there's quite a lot of zombies throughout the film mm -hmm. that barely have that much makeup on them because obviously they're fresh kills so they've only just come back to life but that's what kind of makes it more believable than, say, making every zombie, even if they're just fresh, kind of look like something out of a Lucio Fulci film. Yeah. And that's not a knock against Lucio Fulci. <laughs> you don't knock that man, even if he has weird fucking movies. He pulled you yes. out of your mouth, dude. <laughs> well, I, I will be covering Fulci at some point at for this show with, he, with that whole Italian zombie spin-off series from okay. Dawn of the Dead. So that will happen. But again, uh... Barbara goes on the run, and I like the fact that the farmhouse is somehow even more closer to the cemetery this mm. time around. It's like literally down the down the hill. It's like down the hill, or at least it feels like it's down the hill. Mm. And right. then once uh, Barbara gets to the house, and I and this of course was a real farmhouse, like they kind of used for the first film, not the same one, but something similar. It's a very believable farmhouse. It looks very lived in, and they did a great job with the production design of this to make it look feel real. And of course, uh. They kind of change things around. So Barbara, she sees a blood trail and then a hand falls That's off right. the rail and discovers a zombie up there. But I like that they kind of, again, subvert that because we think she's going to run into a dead body. <laughs> but instead she runs into another zombie mm. and she freaks out. And then that's when Ben drives up, runs over a zombie, 
together they sort of fight back against the zombies. So this time, though, we kind of see that this Barbara is not going to be the same as she was in the previous yeah. film. She is actually fighting back against the zombies. And, of course, you know, the relationship between Ben and Barbara starts off. And we kind of see them how... And most of this action takes place during the day compared to how mm. they met at night in the original. It's kind of interesting, like, again, the film is following the same beats, but it's but subverting it and doing it slightly yeah. different. Because right. I feel like once Ben shows up, like, straight away, because they're fighting against, uh, you know, the undead, like, Ben and Barbara really form this, like, bond straight away. Like, you really feel that. And I feel like it takes more time to kind of feel that in the original, whereas here, because we we have a very different Barbara, she's she's not allowing herself to shut down with what's going on. She knows she has to fight. And I think Ben mentions that early on as well. Yeah. Like he knows he, she has that in her. And you do feel like a very strong bond, like straight off the bat with the two characters. on empty we can't take the chance of running dry out in the middle of nowhere we'll hold up here hope that some help comes my name is ben what's your name barbara Look here, Barbara. I don't need you falling apart on me, you understand? I see what you did over there. I know you can fight when you have to. But you have to now, right now. Fight what you're thinking, fight what you're feeling. That fight to keep you strong, keep you thinking straight. What's happening? I don't know. Nobody knows. And and you do get the sense that Ben is a very caring guy, um, even though he makes his own mistakes through the film. Like, I think it's a really solid introduction. And then, you know, we obviously get more because they're not alone in the house. Um, right. Well, well, and first off, I I think that the thing with the, the zombie hand that fall or the zombie that falls over the railing, right? Th this is something I love about Savini is that his... His direction style is more subtle. You know, there's not a lot of things you can really point to and go like, oh, that's a Savini movie. Uh, although I do, I, I've always found that his episodes of Tales from the Dark Side were some of the best of that series, uh, just because he is such a, I think, a really good director that I kind of wish would have done more. But but that but that is an example of that, where he just, even though his style is more subtle, he's really great at setting up scares. You know, like I, I love that whole scene where she's kind of laying there and you just slowly have her point of view of the zombie just falling over the railing. Uh, and that's another way that it subverts us first because we know that something's up there, but in the original, there was no zombie falling over the railing, you know, like she goes up and sees stupid bloody face. Um, but no, their relationship's great. I, I agree that it feels more uh, connective from the beginning. And I kind of love that Tony Todd gives us his expression, seeing her beat the shit out of the zombie is almost kind of like our expression as the audience if we're really familiar with the original because it's our first moment to go like, oh shit, 
this isn't the same Barbara. Like, cause she's actually doing something different and she communicates with them. She's not just this vacant, pretty much statue that he deals with in the original. So yeah. And, all, and also like compared to the original, like Ben for most of the time as Barbara's in a catatonic state and he's just talking to her. So there's only just a one way conversation mm. between the two of them. But this time though, since as you know, Ben tells Barbara, you know, I need you to, you know, be strong right now. So he gives her that speech, like, don't break down. You've got to be strong. Uh, there is a lot more interaction between the two of them. And so we de- it deepens their relationship. And also, I would even say, though, like, would you guys agree that compared to the original, which Barbara was definitely a character who was affected a lot by trauma, would you say that Ben, the version of Ben in this one is also affected by trauma, but in a different way, because he go- when he goes into his first run in with the zombies, which is completely different story from the back from the backstory he gives in the original where basically like he's at a diner and then some guy comes along shoots up the restaurant trying to get zombies and other people get killed and all that so as he's talking about this he's definitely becoming more emotional he becomes very teary-eyed so would you say that this version of ben is a much more traumatic character oh yeah i yeah i i actually think that they all are you know, the mm, yeah. uh, and this, you know, this is in both versions, but I feel like Savini's is a little bit stronger on this end in that you really do feel like every character in the movie has experienced some kind of trauma because, you know, li- like you're saying, Ben is more emotional here. To- I mean, look, this is one of Tony Todd's, in my opinion, best performances. I think he's great in this. And, and you can really like, I understand that he was really, uh, excited and proud to be doing this role because he because he really looked up to you know Dwayne Jones as an actor and so he was kind of excited to do this role and you can feel that in the performance like he really puts everything into it the thing that I think this version is really good at is you do feel this sense that every character is dealing with trauma in some kind of way because they're all very emotional you know uh, emotions are like at peak height basically and they're all terrified you know, that's the thing that I take away more from this one than the other is that d- despite Judith O'Day being, you know, catatonic and all that kind of stuff, I got a better sense in this version that these people are just fucking terrified, you know? Yeah, and it really reflects in how each one of them acts. Like, you can mm-hmm. tell Ben and Barbara, like, this is fucked up. They're terrified, but it's just the different reactions from the first film. Right. That makes this quite different. Plus, when we see the other characters, like, they also don't know what the fuck is going on. Mm. Uh, I know what I'm talking about. You don't. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. All the bullshit. Well, well, Harry, you know, Harry, even though he's this big fucking asshole and we all hate him, you know, he makes sense in a way because he's also terrified. I mean, the dude is so frightened of the idea of doing anything else other than what he thinks is safe that he's willing to like kill people over it you know like that's not that's not him being evil he's just fucking horrified so it's basically like flight or fight mode for all these characters exactly and they and they're just doing what they believe is what they can do to survive and also like what's interesting about ben in this version and our good friend marcy marcus brought this up with in our discussion on the character in the previous one is I would think even this time though, the flaws of Ben are a bit more apparent. And I'm not saying that as a negative thing, but Mm. I think that's kind of what makes the character interesting. Cause once Carrie comes into the picture uh, played by Tom Towers, like they immediately do not like each other at all. And they're already in a screaming match within (laughs) 30 seconds of meeting compared to like how it is in Mm. the original 
So it's interesting, kind of got two different characters from different backgrounds, two different points of view, and they're so at each other so much that they both have their good points, like in terms of what they should do. But at the same time, though, like both characters are so righteous and believing what they're doing is right that it ends up being the downfall for all the characters in the end. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that, that's what I was saying before is that the, the two of them, I think, are so much more at each other's throats to make a, a, a social commentary sort of point with this is that, again, when you only have two, quote unquote, leaders that you're listening to and they have such different views and all they can really do is argue with each other and you know swing their dicks at each other that's not a situation that's good for anybody you know Um, yeah that's that's going to be the downfall as it really is exactly Um, and again why i love barbara just being pretty much right about everything because you know it's of course you're not going to listen to the fucking woman in the room because you got two over masculine uh testosterone filled males like trying to duke it out and they're not listening to the one person making sense so yeah like especially on this most recent watch like that whole toxic masculinity stuff was just so there yeah and i did not really pick up on that when i originally watched it so watching it this time i'm like holy shit like that is a message and a half to deliver oh yeah no for real and it's it's just so funny by the time you know you get to the end because there's all these little things that pop up like the fact that they had an attic like you know if you had taken five minutes to just look through the house instead of bitching at each other you could have found an attic which actually would have been the safest part of the house because zombies can't get up there just pull the ladder up you're good That we know of. That we know of. <laughs> I mean, they know how to use bricks. Um, right. They would have really had yeah. stacked bricks, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of what's interesting about, yeah. I think even more so, because I think, at least for me, how it's sort of portrayed in the original film, it felt believable to me, like hmm. in any normal situation. But I do I do like it how it's portrayed here, but it's definitely much more heightened. Oh, yeah. Like a bit more exaggerated. But it's interesting because, again, you got Ben and Harry, these two opposing characters who are basically like having a big dick swinging contest. And then, of course, you got the characters of uh, Tom and Judy, uh, the two, the young boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm. Like they're kind of caught in between these two. Like even Tom in particular is not sure which side he wants to go on. Again, he's, as we kind of mentioned in the previous episode, he seems like the character who's looking for a leader and will follow anyone who makes the most sense. But I like the fact that in this version of the film, Tom and Judy are given a bit more dimension to their characters. Like Tom actually has a connection to the house Mm. that they're in because his uncle and cousin live in the house. And uh, Judy is a bit even more proactive as a character as well. They add a little bit more to that. It's interesting kind of seeing like, again, the different things, but also how it also follows the same beats as well. But it's interesting just like on this film, and I sort of noticed this, and I don't know if you feel the same way, that like with the original one, you can easily pick up which themes it's going for. But I like the fact that at least in this one, it feels like it's covering some of the same themes, but kind of either looking at them in a different way Mm. or kind of diving into different themes. So, because with the original, like the subtext of that film is obviously race, even even though Romero himself has stated that that wasn't deliberate. Right, he insists that wasn't it, but yeah. it is there. But yeah. Just, yeah, it is there, but you don't really pick that up, at least in this 
on this version of the film? I, I think it's in a different, it, it, I think it's portrayed in a different sense. So like, hmm. first of all, I agree with you that the emotion, uh, the dialogue is all very heightened, very exaggerated in this. And, hmm. and, and to a noticeable degree, where like, you know, if someone was to tell me that they don't like this version as much because it's so exaggerated, I, I would understand that. I'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah. I get it. Yeah. it. It overdoes it a little bit. And you kind of have to be on board with that or not. And and I think the funny thing about that is that if I remember correctly, Romero wrote the script for this as well. And, yeah. and it almost kind of feels like, you know, it almost kind of feels like he basically just, even though it's a 1990 movie, still did 60s dialogue. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? You know, it still feels very 60s in the dialogue and just like that kind of fast talking, quickie, <laughs> like heightened, exaggerated sort of tone. But as far as the themes of it, I feel like race isn't exactly the main contention here. You know, it's not it's not the primary theme, but I do feel like there's an undertone of it to a degree because like how how Ben and Harry first exact uh, interact with each other when they first meet, it almost Ooh. instantly feels like Harry is potentially this racist dude who's like immediately frightened by the black man and oh no i'm not going to listen to the black man you know and i feel like ben immediately gets that sense from him of like oh this fucking racist white dude trying to tell me what to do <laughs> mm. and and so i think you can sort of have a little of that there if, if you're looking for it but the but i also feel that you know and maybe this is just because i'm the day before midterms here in america but it, it, i really do get that sense of like the political parties kind of worn off to a degree mm. you know where it's almost like ben's like representative of the progressive party and and harry's you know the conservative and and everyone else are like these voters caught in between like they just can't decide who they want to follow and barbara is the one sane one who's like neither of them <laughs> so basically what you're saying is Matt, don't vote for ben or harry just vote for barbara <laughs> vote <laughs> vote barbara vote bob barbara vote barbara barbara for president although you know <laughs> in, in our nation's case right now you have to vote for ben because harry's gonna get power otherwise and ruin everything so <laughs> mm. Yeah, but there's also a lot of interesting things because I keep going back and forth whether how I feel about Tom Tao's performance in this film. Because I'm used to Carl Hardman's performance in that one because I felt like that one was more believable. But uh -huh. Tom Tao's in particular is way more over the top <laughs> in this version. And I keep going back and forth whether it may be a little too over the top for me. It's it's both amazing and terrible all at once, you know, because because he, he does like... I think Marcy was saying this earlier, he does capture really well, you know, that dickhead persona. Like you really, you really hate him. And I think that, I think that the performance is very effective in that sense. And just his, his facial expressions all throughout, you know, they're, they both give you the sense of the character of how insanely awful he is, but it's also kind of like amusing and entertaining and, you know, fun. So like, I do, I do think he does a good job. He sells what the movie's doing. But like I said before, I would understand people who don't like the movie in a sense because the performances, especially his, are so over the top that believable isn't really the word I'd put on them, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, they're all about the theme. They're very much about the theme and the heightened themes. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I mean, it doesn't take much to actually come across someone like that in real life. So. This, well, is that is true. this is true. You just don't want to believe that people like that actually exist. <laughs> but they do, and we've seen they that do. over the past, like, almost three years. So, mm. Mm -hmm. But um, I think what's also interesting about this film is, again, how it subverts things. 
the radio bulletins and the TV newscasts about what's going on don't play that much of a big part of the film. They play a small part. And one of my favorite things about this film, and it kind of makes this film very way ahead of its time, is when they, they discover a TV, they turn it on. But when Ben and Tom find it, it's just the emergency broadcast system like screen. But then when Harry finds it, there's a news bulletin going on. But compared to the news bulletin in the original, which took the whole situation seriously, and it kind of updated as like more and more information, because these are professional newscaster in the 60s. But compared to a 1990s newscaster, as they're kind of getting all this thing, you can see the newscaster's face as he's reading all this stuff. And he's just giving like this scoff kind of look like, <laughs> this is all bullshit. This is, and they kind of come up with conspiracy theories about like what's going on. Like even Ben's mentions like, oh, I was listening to the radio and they think all this is happening because a bunch of lunatics escaped prison. And he's like, that's bullshit. And then of course you see the news, like newscaster kind of just like going on and on, reading all this stuff. But then of course he'll say, oh, well, some other people say this is like from this institute think this is all false. So it's kind of interesting that in 1990, this movie... (laughs) kind of predicted like something like Fox News or something like that way ahead. It's seriously fascinating. Like if you go back through film from, uh, I mean, honestly, the the 70s on, you know, there's so many examples like Carpenter uh, was doing a lot of stuff with this. Like his film in the mouth of madness was actually a great representation of some of the things we go through where, you know, the, the whole idea of that movie is once the, is you know you might be the sane person now but if the insane were to become the majority then you would be the insane one you know <laughs> like that uh a lot of these movies really predicted this stuff but no you're right i mean that's exactly what we've seen this past decade is that sort of thing where there's just all this mis- misinformation out there you know and and people listen to their source and if it's their source you know, no one else can be right. They're, what they listen to is correct and anything else is incorrect. Um, it's almost like whatever makes them feel the most, you know, you're faced with a an unprecedented situation, but then you hear something that's like, doesn't make it seem as bad. Mm-hmm. You're going to take, like, you know, you see people take that on and be like, oh no, this must be it because I'm too shit scared to accept reality. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot of what this stuff is, is, you know, it's all about really appealing to people's fears in a sense and what they what they want to believe is true. Right. So there's a lot of people that, you know, have very uh, let's just call them incorrect viewpoints on on other cultures and stuff like that. And, you know, they are, are afraid of them or whatever. Half of us are like, stop being a fucking racist. You know, that's not right and then the other half the like fox news of the world they're out there playing on those fears and being like no you're absolutely correct you're so right to feel so scared you know and it gives them comfort in a way it makes them feel like oh yeah i i am right i'm not crazy i'm not wrong like people just love to be right is really the crux of it i feel like i feel like we veered off here what was the question again a little bit (laughs) Well, it's just mainly the newscast, uh, uh-huh. how, even though they are only a small part in this version of the film, but they still, it they do kind of mirror still rea- the reality that we are living right now, just like a few de- decades beforehand. <laughs> so it was kind of a way ahead of its time in some, some way. But then again, maybe it was already like that at 
back in 1990. I'm not sure. I mean, you, you kind of look at sort of coming out of the 80s, uh, you know, specifically in the US, you're coming out of like post Ronald Reagan, but you're not really any better because you have George Bush, you have the Gulf War kind of, you know, all this stuff that's still going on. Like, yeah, this stuff definitely goes to those fears and that mentality and you can definitely see kind of inspirations because Savini had that experience with you know seeing Vietnam firsthand and being sort of that photographer and seeing the real horrors that people do and again it it goes with that thing like you could have these external uh monsters and whatnot but the the real the real monsters really is still humanity Right. I mean, it's what's so powerful about these movies, right? And the message from Romero, and in this case, Savini and Romero, is that, again, we're just this species that is so kind of incapable of talking things out, you know, or just, or, or, or really just listening to each other. Um, because we just, you know, there, you just have all these different sides of facts, or, or, or what people believe is the truth. And when you have that, people are just unwilling to give up what they believe is reality, you know, like to the to the point they'll kill for it. I mean, the whole ending with Ben and uh, and Harry shooting at each other, like what for? What what for is what, that? What did that? What did yeah? What did that accomplish? Nothing. Right. Like you both ended up dead in the end. Right. Like they're only doing that because they disagree with each other. You know, like neither and and the disagreement is what makes each other a threat. You know, and that and the downfall of everybody in the movie is they just cannot sit down and rationally talk for even a moment. Cooper, I got a shotgun out here. You open the store, you motherfucker. I swear I'll blow this shit. What are you Cooper? doing? What do you hope to accomplish? Shut up, Helen. What do you hope to accomplish? Shut up, Helen! I'm counting to three, Cooper. Then I'm coming through. We're going to open! <laughs> I'm counting, that's one! What you gonna do, Cooper? That's two! Better open this door right now, Cooper! Caged in up here, you want to be able to run downstairs. That's not the way it's working, pal. You want to get in that cellar, you get in there now, or you can forget it. I'm not boxing myself in down there until there's absolutely no other choice. And I'm not gambling with my daughter's life! You want to stay up here, that's your decision. Don't count on me to help you. Look, I am not counting on you for shit, Cooper. That's why I'm not going to let You're you... You're going to keep on fighting, then get out! This is our house! This is Tommy's house! Here's you all playing Brewster with it! Like that. Now come on, let's try and work together and get some of this damn shit done. 
Mm. Yeah, and the thing yeah. is, like, reality is reality. It's there. Yeah, but a lot of people... It doesn't will... matter whether you're right or wrong, it's fucking going to come for you, so... But, but that's what, like, the different variations of quote-unquote truth do to people, is everyone... You know, nobody believes that they're not in reality, right? Like, like all the people that we vehemently disagree with, they, they're living their own reality. <laughs> they're, they're just, you know, in a lot of cases, they're just unwilling to see like what actually is reality. But, but no, nobody goes into it thinking like, I'm not living in reality. Of course they think they're in reality. They just don't know the difference because we all get our fact or our truths from different places. So, hmm. and uh, then we get to basically Ben and ev- Barbara and everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like, go to, we're going to the climax of the film now. <laughs> Where uh, they decide to make a break for it with the uh, the famous scene from the original where they're basically going to go to the fuel pump, fill up the truck, and then try to escape. This is a very tense scene, especially because now the zombies are very much like swarming on the house and all the characters are fighting off the zombies. But I think in this version, though, you can definitely sense the panic between all the characters as they're trying to, you know, all the trying to do what they need to do. But the zombies are descending upon them, so of course they're obviously freaking out, and of course they're going to make mistakes. Although there's one little bit in the movie, a little touch in this film that I really love, as Ben's like fighting off the zombies with the torches, all that. One, he lights up one of the zombies. The zombie hits the wall, and a bit of the wall goes up in flames. And Tony Todd, the badass that he is, literally puts out that entire bit of fire on the wall with his hand in one go and it's out and i thought that was amazing um, <laughs> i don't know if that was deliberate or not but it no, was amazing i mean, I mean look t- tony todd is a badass all right i mean if you've ever seen Candyman with all the bees coming out of his mouth and shit he shot that for real those are real bees all right those yes oh yeah this was the 90s that shit wasn't digital and fake and everything that it is now you know like he actually did that so Oh yeah, and obviously he jumped, fell out of the car as a, as well when it went flying out because you saw him fly out of that car as right. it was going around that corner. But I also think uh, once they Tom and Judy get to the fuel pump, I think the movie kind of makes them even more idiotic as characters this oh, yeah. time around because, <laughs> like in the original, like how the car blows up, basically, yeah, they shoot out the lock and they try to you know get the fuel in, uh, then the torch that Ben has gets knocked to the ground, which sets everything alight. So it's obviously a mistake. But this time, though, Tom uh, becomes a bit of an idiot. So they realize they don't have the fuel, the pump key. So he sh- tries to shoot out the <laughs> the lock this time around. But unfortunately, due to the shotgun blast, it ricochets and then, of course, sends everything blowing up and on fire. See, see, that I mean... Me that thought he was just shooting the fuel line to get the fuel out. Like, I, yeah. I didn't even interpret it as he was shooting at the lock. He's just so panicked. He's like... I gotta get this gas now, and it's just shooting the line. Yeah. Yeah, Obviously, you probably shouldn't put something that is that could be an ignition uh, hmm. to, to well, gas. Oh, go ahead. Let's blow up, yeah. Dickhead. Yeah, I was gonna say it's more of the panic of the characters this yeah. time around because obviously, if he wasn't being panic stricken, he probably could have shot it at an angle to get rid of it. But like you say, Matt, since the lock was so close to the, you know, to the pipe of the to the to the pump, obviously he would have hit that and then. I, I mean, just look, blew the whole thing up. I mean, look, you know, it, it's a great argument for why you shouldn't just hand out guns to people like candy as we do here in America, you know. But if you come to America and you arrive in town, they basically just have a dude standing out the street who like hands you your free gun, you know. But no, the the panic is real in this. Like, it really, again, it's all it's all very much exaggerated and heightened in this movie. Like, you, the panic is overtakes the whole thing. 
to the point where they are just being stupid. I mean, that's really the whole mm. point of the movie is they're just being stupid the entire time, you know, because mm. they're so mm. panicked and they can't, you know, they're they're on um, they're on just like survival screaming in their brains mode and they can't think straight. <laughs> mm. And um, of course, everything goes haywire. Ben gets back get gets back to the to the house, and of course, along the way, he beats the shit out of a bunch of zombies, which is great. Fuck yeah, does. sequence of fighting and choreography there and then gets back to the house but helen goes downstairs and her death scene of her and harry's daughter i always keep forgetting the character's name oh sarah that's it uh (laughs) is different played differently here than it was in the original although i did love the kind of the reference to the little i don't know what that thing is called there's a little hand rake or something else but instead of her using it on her mum, as helen's being bitten the blood just squirts squirts out from the neck and hits that on the wall which i thought was like a fun little kind of a little reference there and then as you both already stated before she comes up the stairs harry can't bring himself to shoot his daughter even though yes she's now a zombie then he and ben get into a shootout they both injure each other then barbara makes a break for it and will go says to ben she'll come back with help because ben knows he's not going to make it Harry goes upstairs, finds the attic, which again is a nice little touch because like if only they looked around a little bit more, they could have found obviously the safest part in the house. Then Ben goes downstairs and a beautiful bit of irony. Zombies have descended the house. They're trying to break in. He's downstairs. He's got his last cigarette. He's hearing like the news radio bulletins. Now this time the reporters are believing everything that's going on. But then he looks over on the table and he finds the gas pump key. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a beautiful little bit of irony where we see Ben basically start laughing to the point of basically he's going mad. And of course, the scene goes, fades to black. Well, it's great because I I think that that's his moment of coming to terms with, man, we really fucked up, you know, (laughs) like that, like that is his moment of realizing because he is part of the problem in this movie, you know, like it's not, it's not just Harry, like Ben is part of the problem as well, because Ben's also got that sort of alpha male drive going on where he wants to be right and everyone else is wrong, you know? And so he, so he's just as flawed. He, he has his own problems and that's just his moment of, man, if only I had just been a rational human being for one second, then, <laughs> you know, tried to, tried to work things out here. Uh, we could have found this key. And of course it's also a reference yeah. to the fact that Harry's just such a fucking dipshit. You know, cool. that he was in the basement the whole time and didn't even look for the right goddamn key. So, um, and plus, he never even allowed Ben or even Tom to come down to even have a look properly yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I do really appreciate, too, the ultimate irony of both versions of the movie where Ben ends up in the cellar anyway. You know, because I've always found that to be just emphasizing that fact of just there is no really right or wrong in the situation. There is how do you all work together to live? <laughs> You know, no, no one's right or wrong. It's just you have to work together. And I think that was always kind of the point is he still ends up down there regardless. And it's not any better or worse for him because he's alone. Yeah, exactly. And uh, of course, uh, Barbara makes a break for it and <laughs> kind of proves like on along the way that she's easily can just dart around all the zombies. Yep. And the zombies, like even when they're so close to her, they barely even attempt to try to bite her or at least like mm. in a way, which is, I think is very funny. And then eventually uh, she <laughs> stumbles across the most stereotypical over the top country yokels of all time <laughs> in anything. And no then shit. they try to shoot her thinking that she's a zombie, which 
I think it's an interesting kind of play on Ben's death in the original, but of course she survives. Finds out that her brother Johnny is in the back of this truck, although it's a very quick scene and it's very confusing at first because it doesn't linger that it, you don't process that it is Johnny's body at first until you see that he's wearing the same gloves as mm. he did at the at the start. And then, of course, goes into the rest of it where Barbara wakes up the next day at the hunter's camp. This is kind of the part of the movie I'm kind of always mixed on because, again, the country yokels, yes, they, it's possible that people like this do exist in real life, but they're so cartoonish and over the top. They just don't feel believable to me. And then this is where, yeah. And this is where, like, George with his script really hammers home the points he's trying to make with the film. And it comes across as not very subtle. And I know that's a weird criticism to have of George A. Romero, but you know, as, mm. as much as I do love the man, sometimes he can be way too on the nose with his uh, themes. Like, especially because how the cat, these yokels react, like mind you, this zombie apocalypse has only been happening for 24 hours. And these people are acting like it's already been a whole year because they've already got, zombies in like like a, in a game and they're and one startling image which i think is actually quite effective if not subtle is of course the zombies are lynched up in a tree and being shot at which of mm. course obviously is a a very haunting little shot and of course as you guys already stated earlier barbara says the line which kind of drives home the point of the film is like they are us and we are them they go back to the house and again, the country yokels are going like, yeehaw, and all that type of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, in, again, subversion to the film, they go to the basement. And I'll give these country yokels credit. They're a lot more smarter than the ones in the original because they don't, once they actually open up the uh, the basement, they don't shoot Ben <laughs> until they find out if he's a zombie first. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a tragic scene because, again, Ben has died, turned into a zombie, has this quick little exchange with Barb, and then, of course, he gets shot, and then Barbara goes around the corner and discovers Harry, who survived, and this is a delicious moment. She shoots Harry in the head and just yeah. says, oh, yeah, there's another one for the fire. Yep. And then... <laughs> so so, so I, I do disagree a little bit on the exaggeration of the yokels in this movie. Because uh, hmm. as someone who lives in America... I can tell you that I can pretty much guarantee you that all of that would be what was happening 24 hours after the zombie invasion. <laughs> like, I mean, you, I can gotta, believe that to be fair. You gotta, you gotta understand like that, that portion of this country is so gun horny, you know, that, and, and like, like there, there is a certain portion of this country that is much larger than I think people realize that is like Ooh. that is like horny for war you know like hor horny for guns and killing and just really looking for an excuse for it i mean we have i don't even know how many like civil war militias you know in this country that like just cannot wait to start doing the shit that they do in this film and Ooh. the and i think that well i get your point about romero kind of really hammering at home i i do appreciate that with this because i think for a film like this it's kind of necessary you know like that i think that's sort of where the power comes from is just that idea that like wow humanity is really fucked and we really should consider this before we can move on to something you know better like we really have to acknowledge that this is who people are because sure. you know i mean the whole like you you and i we were talking about the the race kind of thing with it i think that's another sort of subtle well maybe not so subtle thing here with this is like 
the zombies hanging that have been lynched, you know, I think that's just emphasis on the idea that there certainly is a portion of humanity that, that just refuses to accept anyone who's different. And, you know, obviously in this case, like, yeah, the zombies are going to kill us. We got to, we got to kill them. But the, the whole lynching and everything, I think is just reflective of this country's past, you know, that those groups of people who refuse to look at anyone different from themselves as human. Right. And, and again, Barbara kind of hammering home that point of like, we are them and they are us that in a way also applies to the racing of just like, we're all people. And, and yet we can't seem to treat each other with equality. And Bossy, you're the of a statement on that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if there's anything else I can really add to what's been said. Like, yeah, they, we've got those yokels and whatnot. But like, almost I feel like if a zombie invasion were really happening, I feel like those would be the first people to shit themselves and just abandon everything and run off. Oh, totally. I mean, they're all cowards. It's why they carry fucking guns to Walgreens, you know? Like, they're... Yeah, like, that's not going to do anything. Like, I think, yeah. Who needs um... a fucking gun to go get some fucking cold medicine, you know? Like, I, just... I, don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. In Australia, we don't really need guns. We are the weapons, so don't fuck with me. And, and also, we have giant adam- giant killer animals here too, Marcy. Let's oh, just say that. Yeah. That's true. Everything there can kill you. So mm. that's why we have to be the weapon. But right. yeah, it, it it's actually a really sad scene when she sees like those zombies just being hung, and that realization is like we're them, they are us. It's it, I feel like this film in in that scene specifically, it's just humanity is fucked. And that's something else that Romero uh, in his writing and his films does really well that I don't think you see done as well in a lot of zombie films where, you know, of course there are plenty of zombie movies where, 
you know, the characters have some kind of sympathy for the zombie. Like, oh, that used to be my 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 girlfriend that I used to, you know, fuck like uh, two years ago. Like, we, we of course, there's this sympathy that they all have there for him. But I feel like Romero just really, really it, it shows just such an empathy for the zombies, you know? Uh, like like Day of the Dead is a really good one where where they really just kind of look at the zombies like I feel sorry for you you know and that and that's cool. something that we see here and I think that in this case it was one of the first times we really saw that was that sort of empathy for them with Barbara you know just kind of seeing the way that they're being treated and actually feeling sorry for the monster we just we just didn't well, see that that often in this kind of movie they they you... they, they don't have a choice hmm. like Would um, you... you don't have a choice to be a zombie that's just fucking happened yeah. to them so would it also be that and i just thought of this just now since she finds johnny in the back of that ute a now zombified johnny dead do you think that's probably why she has empathy more now with the zombies because her brother turned into one and now he's dead oh yeah because i think that uh, something that they do a little bit better in this version as well is the whole thing with going to visit the mother at the grave because that that portion of uh, the script isn't really a big deal in the original you know like they're like I don't know how to say it there's not there's not a lot of emphasis on the sort of family idea of it and the fact that Barbara is kind of not just scared of death but a little bit traumatized by it and I, I think that I think that's a little bit stronger in this film is that you really do get the sense in the first act that Barbara is terrified of death and that her mother dying has really hit her hard, not because she misses her, but because she's kind of having to accept the permanence of death. You know, it's like because c- she's this person who apparently Barbara hated, but now that she's died, she feels a responsibility to her because she's really recognized of like wow, she was awful, but death is permanent. You know, she's gone forever, whatever. I really feel like that's a big part of the story here with Barbara. So yeah, her seeing her brother in the back, I think just hammers that home further of like, this is real, basically. Um, So I I do think, yeah, I totally agree. I do think that that helps her really recognize the zombies being them as seeing her brother and just equating them to each other, you know? Yeah, like, it's an interesting... I mean, I don't think, for me, this is for me personally, I don't think the ending for this one, even though I do like it overall, even if there are, of course, aspects of it I am a bit mixed on, I don't think it quite hits as hard as the original's ending does. Yeah. But, you know, I but I know for a fact you can't really do that ending again. Like, they have to do something a bit different. And I think having Ben die on his own, becoming a zombie, definitely kind of lessens his death but at the same time i think as an audience we're probably we wouldn't want to see that same thing happen to him again if he was alive so him being a zombie definitely in a way does lessen the impact but in a good way but it definitely sends the crowd at least on a more happier note when harry being such a wanker as he is in this version is getting shot by barbara and having barbara live in the end definitely definitely makes it a much more i would say a, a happy ending but it definitely <laughs> like it it's a different type of impact maybe not the same as the originals but it's still a good ending like i guess that's probably why some people were kind of yeah it's different but also i could definitely see why some people probably did feel this remake worked for them maybe because it didn't have the same type of powerful impact of the original i mean i mean no doubt that the original has a more powerful ending you know i mean mm-hmm. just like looking at it today even you know like i was saying before like you're left in awe of it you know like you can't you don't have words for it really and 
the fact that that ending was in like what 1960 i mean i can't even imagine being in the theater and seeing that for the first time because people did not talk about that stuff through film you know to to see this black man just hooked and burned and everything that happens in the finale that yeah it's awful it's terrible you know it, it really hits you hard and so this is definitely different it's not as powerful of that in a sense but i do you know i do i do think it's still pretty effective and even with the barber thing like you know the barber thing's kind of a a funny mixed emotion kind of thing because you on one hand you're like fuck yeah you know <laughs> kick harry's ass shoot him in the face you know like you hate harry so much that it's so satisfying to see him get it through her but then at the same time i, I think there's a sadness to that as well because it's basically symbolic of the fact that barbara has now become everything she's been trying to not be throughout the entire movie you know because i because i think that i think that what that says for her in the end is she is now given into this new world of violence that they're living in where it's like now this is a world where human the ugliest parts of humans are going to come out regardless you know and her so her doing that to harry i think is is saying and hammering at home that message of like she's been trying to be the good one this whole time the the sensible one and this is her first like completely senseless you know uh, awful act <laughs> and i think it just says like yeah she's given up already she's already mm-hmm. she's already succumbed to this shitty new world so <laughs> yeah the the uh the world where we have to fight for our lives every day yep. against zombies yep. and possibly and humans, as we have seen in zombie media <laughs> since the original uh, Night of the Living Dead. Exactly. But, uh, I've, yeah, so I think what's interesting about this film is going into the backstory behind it, is this was, as you stated before, Marty, was produced by Mahayam Golan, who, of course, is best known as one half of the Cannon Group during the 80s. But he actually had moved on from Cannon Group by this point and started his own film studio, What's interesting, though, is like the film was distributed by Columbia Pictures, who were originally going to distribute the original. But the only reason they didn't end up doing that in the end, because they wanted Romero to change the original's ending. So it's kind of an ironic thing that they didn't do that for the original, but they ended up releasing the remake. But again, of course, obviously, the ending for this version is a bit more different compared to the original. And of course, you know, one of the reasons why this film exists in the first place, is, of course, you know, um, because, and I'm going to read this from the Wikipedia page so I don't get anything (laughs) wrong, is that the uh, reason that this film was made was that Romero said that the remake came about in part due to issues over profits of the original film. A lengthy court battle over the rights of the film, plus an oversight that caused the copyright notice not to be included, caused Romero to see very little way of profit. Romero's production company, Image 10, eventually won the lawsuit, but the distributor went out of business before they could collect the money. So another issue was the fact that film the filmmakers were worried that, of course, uh, someone would make an authorized remake and, oh, my sweet summer child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Romero contacted Maya Golan when he heard that film, 21st Century Film Corporation was interested in a remake. So Romero, John A. Russo, and Russell Strider collaborated for the first time in 20 years. So this is pretty much how this remake came about, was Romero, in a, since this, the original had gone into the public domain by this point, he could see some kind of profit 
So by making a remake, so even though he couldn't get the profits from the original, he could at least get some profit from the remake. Like, I guess in a way you could probably see it as him just kind of doing this film for reasons. But at the same time, though, I still reckon Romero, this wasn't like some kind of by the numbers type of job for him. Like he definitely wanted to update the story, add a couple of new elements in there. But of course, you know, kind of get in there before (laughs) many more remakes of uh, the original came about, which wouldn't happen until years later. But it's a good thing he did because there have been a lot of remakes of Night of the Living Dead over the last 30 years. So at least four. It's always good to be first, you know, or usually is. uh, um, Exactly. In in this case, he definitely got ahead of just a terrible batch of movies. Um, (laughs) No, I'm glad that they got, I mean, despite all the issues that came about with the production, I'm glad that they did get the opportunity because, yeah, I mean, they still teach, you know, in film school, like that whole thing with, uh, the rights to Night of Living Dead and Romero not having them. Like, I mean, that's still taught, you know, to teach young filmmakers about avoiding that very terrible mistake. Because, yeah, he ne- he didn't ever made a dime off of the original Night of the Living Dead, and that's awful for how successful that movie was. So, no, I'm glad that, that he did this and got to, you know, see some kind of money from it, hopefully. Um, <laughs> Indeed. And, um... We'll move right along to a quick little segment that I'm going to do every few episodes on this show. We won't spend too much time on this, but so this is only a quick segment for the show. This is a little segment I'm going to call The Living Dead Unreleased. So what is this little segment? Basically, since there's so many versions of Night of the Living Dead out there, whether it's remakes, unofficial follow-ups, and whatnot, We're going to dive into one of those that hasn't been released as of yet, because they're still making it. And that, of course, is the film Night of the Living Dead Genesis, which is an upcoming film written and directed by Matt Cloud. And what the uh, initial idea of Night of the Living Dead Genesis is, is basically it's a prequel sequel that kind of dives into more of the backstory, what happened on that night of the original, but also set during the present in which uh, Judith O'Day, who plays Barbara, reprises her role from the film, and it also goes into what happened to Barbara that night and how she managed to survive the original. Now, this film started shooting in 2014, kept being shot over the course of a bunch of years because, you know, funding and stuff like that. And the last update I found on this film, which of course is on the film's official Facebook page, was from 2019, and apparently, from what I understand, is that it's 95% done, but they just need to finish the last 5%, but it has been, well, over two years since that last post, <laughs> so, but there is a trailer on the film online on YouTube, so I'll put the link of that here in the show notes for the show, so I'm curious, now, you both have watched the trailer, what did you, what are you guys' thoughts on Night of the Living Dead Genesis, but also kind of the idea of, like, Barbara surviving that night and telling her story about what happened. That I night. mean, it's a very short trailer, so we don't really get a lot. I mean, it's an interesting concept of kind of revisiting Barbara many years later and uh, kind of delving into that. But no offense at all <laughs> uh, to those involved, but that trailer, I mean, it it looks honestly like 
I understand it's so hard to get money and funding and to make something look decent, but it it, it looks like shit, uh, <laughs> to be quite frank. And I apologise, I don't want to be that person, but it, it, it looks really cheap, nasty and stupid. And from what I understand, there was funding done on Indiegogo and stuff like that. I don't know. I probably would not want to watch it if it looks like that despite having some interesting ideas, it, it just looks really cheap and nasty. Like, I feel like I could have made something better with no budget, and I feel like I have. Again, I feel like I'm being really mean and I don't want to be because I appreciate, like, what they're trying to do and whatnot. And, you know, if it's 95% done and it looks like that, um, don't release it. Uh, that's all I have to say. Oh. Like, I don't have much that. I feel oh, really bad. I, I mean, I should say... So yeah, yeah, understandably, it's understand. I can understand that, but I should state that the trailer, which I again I'll put on the show notes, is from a couple of years ago. I think from the mid to 2010. So who knows what the film is going to look like in the end? But uh, Matt, your thoughts on the I mean, trailer? I mean, you know, I'm I'm an indie supporter, so like I I, I agree. I mean, the the quality certainly doesn't look good. <laughs> Uh, I'll always give something a chance though, because I I always you know I I want to see the ideas and the style and everything win out because I know not every filmmaker has access to like a good budget and all that. But the I think I think the idea is interesting. I mean, it's certainly good for now because we're in this legacy movie craze that mm. I personally mm. hope dies a quick and violent death soon. Cause I'm kind of, I'm personally kind of sick of it, but the, uh, but, but it certainly fits well for now. I mean, you know, the idea of going back to the original night of the living dead and having Judith O'Day reprise her role. I mean, that, that's pretty cool. I like that idea. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I would be curious to see her story. <laughs> I just, um, I don't know. I mean, I agree based on the trailer. It's not something I'm like, fuck yeah i can't wait to watch that it it looks uh i think it looks more fan film than anything else and i don't say that because of the quality i say that because it looks to be doing the thing that i wasn't really super appreciative about with the recent halloween movies is that they're they're a bunch of fan service i mean there's really very little original in them and it's kind of all about like well let's just give a bunch of references and you know the fans who go crazy because hey who doesn't love seeing a reference to halloween 3 you know and i i I felt that from this trailer because there's lots of little things that feel like references to the original that just feel like feel very much like it's saying hey remember the original movie isn't this fun to to see these Mm. shots again (laughs) you know not really (laughs) (laughs) so so yeah so i don't know i i I don't have much to say about it just because i don't know much about it other than what we've talked about and that brief trailer but yeah, that's something I'm right out to see, but Judith O'Day coming back is cool. Well, I mean, if it ever does eventually come out, I will have to cover it for this show, so I will watch it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, it's very much a very low-budget production, probably even lower than the original 1968 version. Probably. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, wondering if they maybe had $100 and didn't know what to do with it. It just it really, like, I don't want to be mean, but watching it, I'm just like, this is kind of painful, guys. Like, I don't know how you expected to, I don't know, fund money from this trailer. It just, I like, do. you have the ideas, but you just, you made it look shittier than it needs to be. I'm just going to say. For that. for me in this case, it's just kind of a thing of like, you know, 
again i mean look it's your first film not every, you can, i i get it not it's it's difficult to raise money i don't expect it to look great you know but but if you're going to if you're going to have something like that that is basically it feels like they're doing a film that they didn't have the budget for and you're tapping into a franchise that has a really big fan base that has a certain expectation right and i think that if you're going to be working off of a low budget and for what's probably an early if not debut feature for you do your own thing you know don't make a don't make a fan film go do your own thing uh, put your own ideas out there and again i'm sorry i sound really mean and if the uh people behind this uh listen to this and hear me talk and come after me i wouldn't blame you but also i, I i'm try. i i want to be more constructive with my criticism so but it's hard Hmm. Um, because I, I don't know, uh, these people, um, I don't know what's gone into it, but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I have nothing else to say. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not purposely being an asshole, basically. I mean, it could also just be a bad trailer, you know, I mean, not, yeah, nine times out of 10 trailers aren't very reflective of the final product in both good and bad ways. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes they might be have to do a bit of color grading and add more effects and stuff right. like that. I mean, so, I mean just because you're a director doesn't mean you automatically know how to cut a trailer to sell a movie, you know? it's Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, I'm definitely open-minded about it. I'm Again, I will cover that film for the show if it does eventually get released, or it might be end up being like the many versions of Night of the Living Dead that never get released. But uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But yeah, so I guess we'll have to stay tuned for when Night of the Living Dead Genesis does come out. You know, I'll, I'll throw this out there really quick. With I think the thing that is missing from all of these Night of the Living Dead remakes is that, yes. is that t- take a cue from the Winnie the Pooh people, right? Like this is this is, <laughs> this is this is public domain property thanks to that mistake from when the first film came out. Don't just go out and remake Night of the Living Dead. Go do, like, you know, a, a fantastical romance movie set in Night of the Living Dead. Like, go go do something yes. completely crazy that nobody expects. Go do what the Winnie the Pooh people did and take Winnie the Pooh and make him a fucking, like, mass maniac, you know? Like, just do something different. I don't know, is always kind of my take on it. Maybe uh, my idea would be that Barbara and uh, Ben are actually the real villains and their slasher killers going after normal people who are zombies. Yeah. That's my idea. Yeah, fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess that could be uh, a wrap on this episode of Bead versus the Living Dead. We had some really fun discussions talking about the 1990 remake and as well as our brief discussion on the yet unreleased Night of the Living Dead Genesis. Thank you both, Marcy and Matt, for joining me for this second episode of the show. Yeah, no, great time. Great to be here. (laughs) And uh, Marcy, where can people find you on the internet this week? Yeah, so you can find everything Bede and I do uh, that's not this particular podcast at supermarcy.com. Uh, it's our base of operations for the Super Network, so you can find all of our reviews and podcasts there. We also have a link tree, which is linktr.ee slash the Super Network. So you can find us on all the socials and where you can find uh, the podcast on your podcast players, but you can also look up our individual podcasts on there as well. I'm remaining on Twitter despite uh, a certain billionaire fuckface uh, <laughs> taking ownership of it. Nothing is going to stop me. I am blocking, muting, hiding so much shit that has changed in the last few days. 
Uh, it's not bringing me down. I'm not signing up to some other shitty social platform that's not going to exist in a week. So <laughs> uh, if you dare, uh, I am remaining on Twitter at supermarcy.com. Uh, I also occasionally do stuff on Twitch, so you can find me at Supermarcy uh, on the Twitch and also on Letterboxd, uh, super underscore Marcy. And uh, I occasionally am on Instagram, which is just Supermarcy. It's pretty easy to find me. You type in Supermarcy, something will pop up. Um, if you're very savvy, maybe you'll find the Supermarcy OnlyFans, which features me being called down by fans and you pay a tenner to watch that no i'm kidding uh, <laughs> i don't know why i went into that tirade i'm just really warm in here <laughs> and uh matt where can people find you on the internet this week uh yeah so brief tirade as well um so you can <laughs> you can uh you can find uh the podcast that i do killer horror critics with my wife at uh, my website killerhorrorcritic.com it's basically just the two of us getting drunk and arguing as married couples do over horror films. Um, you can also find my writing at killhorrorcritic.com. I do reviews and occasional pieces there that I couldn't sell anywhere else. So you can find my writings also at Dread Central, uh, Daily Grindhouse, Certified Forgotten. Um, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Killer Critics. I am also not leaving. You know, that is where I've been for like what feels like a decade. Uh, all my friends and community are there. And so I'm on it like the Titanic until it's fucking sunk and I'm a frozen corpse. Uh, I will be like Charlton Heston in The Last Man on Earth, blasting away trolls until they pry it from my cold, dead hands. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think, that, I think that about sums it up. Well, if people want to find me personally on Twitter, they can find me at twitter.com slash elon musk parody oh wait sorry that was a joke um <laughs> kidding of course but uh <laughs> but if people want to find me for real uh they can find the official twitter account of bead versus the living dead at twitter.com slash bead vs tld and of course you can find my personal twitter account at b- twitter.com slash bead your mind of course my letterboxd account at t- letterboxd.com slash and of course, you can find all my work over at supermarcy.com and also all the podcasts I co-host with Marcy over there as well. So give those all a listen. So uh, yeah, so thank you for everyone for tuning in this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. I hope you all enjoyed it. And come back in two weeks' time where we're going to see the funny side, hopefully, of the Living Dead, <laughs> in which we're going to be talking about uh, the short parody film Night of the Living Bread, and as well as the comedic redubbing, and which has the longest title in the history of cinema, which I'm going to read right now, so bear with me. Night of the Day of the Dawn of the Sun of the Bride of the Return of the Revenge of the Terror of the Attack of the Evil Mutant Alien Flesh-Eating Hellbound Zombified Living Dead Part 2 in Shocking 2D. Good God. So- <laughs> How do you even put that on the poster? <laughs> I... Somehow they put it on the poster. So <laughs> stay tuned for that one and we'll see you in two weeks. See you, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bead vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.